Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session number 13 on the War of the Jewels. Before we begin tonight, I wanted to officially announce an email has gone out, I believe. So uh, folks will probably have heard this already, but I wanted to officially let you know that our next elected book is... Till We Have Faces by C.S. Lewis. This is a book, uh, it's very exciting because this is a book that has been a bridesmaid several times and has finally won the election. Uh, and uh, I'm particularly excited to talk about Till We Have Faces as Till We Have Faces is, I mean, in my opinion, really without question, it's not even close. This is the greatest work of fiction that C.S. Lewis ever wrote. I say this as someone who loves the Narnia books, um, who is a huge fan of um, um, a huge fan of uh, of the space trilogy, especially Perelandra. Um, but till we have faces, is just incredible. Um, so, really excited to uh, talk about till we have faces. We will begin that when we finish the War of the Jewels. Um, uh, I don't think I'm going to project exactly when that's going to be. Well, let me just say this. I bet you that we can get through the War of the Jewels in no more than 20 sessions. That's what I'm thinking. At this point, now, looking out, because when we finish the Wanderings of Hurin, we're going to be about three quarters of the way done with the book. I think, um, uh, I think we're going to, I think we're going to, we're going to get, uh, there. Um, uh, get there pretty soon. So yeah, anyway. Really looking forward to going through Till We Have Faces with you guys, which we'll do after this. So I'm thinking we'll probably finish sometime in uh, August. The War of the Jewels probably finish in August. And uh, then uh, we'll, we'll begin Till We Have Faces end of August, beginning of September. Like, right, that's my projection. I, we'll see what actually pans out. But that's my projection for uh, where we'll go next. Um, and we will we will see. But... Anyway, very excited. Till we have faces coming up next. There's going to be a couple other extra books that we have that we're going to fit in also, um, uh, due to uh, requests from uh, from donors. So uh, that's going to be. Those are also going to be great fun. But we'll be finishing War of the Jewels, and then we will do Till We Have Faces next. Um, I also wanted to remind folks about Mythmoot coming up very soon um, in two weeks. Well, two weeks from tomorrow is the beginning of Mythmoot down in Leesburg, Virginia. Uh, hope that many of you will be able to get there. This is our main event of the year. It's our big North American gathering, um, though people are welcome from outside of North America too. But uh, anyway, uh, it's going to be great fun. Mythmoot is always wonderful. This is our 10th Mythmoot this year. And um, uh, I am uh, always so looking forward to seeing folks. Homeward Bound is our theme, uh, and it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, so... Yes. Sorry, Karina. Uh, yes. Uh, Till We Have Faces by C.S. Lewis is our next book. Um, yeah. Oh, so Emily, so the cool thing about signing up for Remote Mythmoot, even if you won't be able to attend remotely the whole time, by signing up for Remote Mythmoot, you do get access to the full archives of recordings. So it means that you can... You can at least watch it asynchronously, even if you can't uh, participate in real time. Um... So um, anyway, there we are. Mythmoot 10 coming up in two weeks. Till we have faces uh, for discussion later on, end of the summer, beginning of the fall. Uh, that'll be great, great fun. And in the meantime, 
the wanderings of Hurin. Um, we're going to, um, my goal, I want to see if we can power through the rest of the wanderings of Hurin tonight. That's my goal. My goal is to finish the wanderings of Hurin. Let's see, let's see how, um, how well we do. Let's see how close we come to that. Um, uh, okay. We were just having Manthor coming alongside Hurin. Hurin has been thrown into prison, right? And Manthor was coming to Hurin's cell in order to advise and assist him. And remember, one of the things that we were looking at um, was the rather delightful way in which you could see Tolkien kind of almost getting carried away with um, uh, uh, getting into the the customs and practices of the Haladin, right? Or they who were called the Haladin, um, the Halethrim, uh, the people of Brethil. Um, as he begins to imagine their society more and uh, uh, kind of get into how their society works. And um, Manthor's, Manthor as like the representative of uh, and upholder of their of their cultural value, values and of their laws and traditions, and he keeps uh, he keeps Manthor explaining them to Hurin and to everybody else, right? And I, I think you can see in the midst of all of this um, how Tolkien is just brilliant. This is how it often happens, right? I mean, some of you will remember from Mythgard Academy uh, days of old how you know Tolkien ended up. Have you know in a, in in giving a conversation between the hobbits between you know uh, Pippin and Frodo and Sam as they walked across the um, the Shire, he ended up describing you know uh, the history of hobbit architecture and how they threw their dirty dishes out the window, <laughs> right? Which he ended up cutting the whole. Um, uh, <laughs> cutting out the whole scene, right, and kind of squeezing it into the prologue and, and stuff. Um, but this is how this is how it happens. Just like Faramir, of course, when um, uh, when Faramir is explaining all about the history of Gondor, right, to Frodo. And, uh, you know, Tolkien in that famous letter to Christopher where he's like, yeah, uh, you know, if this... Uh, if this Gondorian dude doesn't like shut up pretty soon, he's going to have to get cut out and move to the appendices. You can see Manthor, like the same thing is happening with Manthor, right? As, uh, um, and this is one of the primary ways in which we see these things happen. They just emerge in people's talk, right? And pretty soon he's doing this sort of full on world building like profile of the culture of the men of Brethil. Uh, anyway, so, um, here we go. Now, this is a this passage we're beginning with here today um, is going to be another example of Tolkien thinking through the relationship between Hurin and the Shadow. We we looked at that a little bit before um, uh, with uh, Lorgan, I think, up in up in Dor Loman. Um, we get another intriguing reference we get, of several that we get today. Yet the voice of your chieftain comes from the shadows, said Hurin, and your folk obey him, and even in deeds of dishonor and cruelty. Grief darkens your eyes, lord, dare I say it. But lest this, this is of course Manthor, but lest this should prove true, let us take counsel together. For I see peril of evil ahead, both to thee and to my folk, though maybe wisdom may avert it. If one thing, of one thing I must warn thee, though it may not please thee. Hardang is a lesser man than his father's, but I saw no evil in him till he heard of thy coming. Thou bringest a shadow with thee, Hurin Thalion, in which lesser shadows grow darker. Dark words from a friend, said Hurin. 
Long I lived in the shadow, but I endured it and did not yield. If there is any darkness upon me, it is only that grief beyond grief has robbed me of light. But in the shadow I have no part. Nevertheless, I say to thee, said Manthor, that it follows behind thee. I know not how thou hast won freedom, but the thought of Morgoth has not forgotten thee. Beware. Now, this is one of the most difficult and painful things to me about the wanderings of Hurin. Um, Hurin the Steadfast, right? The success of Hurin, the scene in which Hurin defies Morgoth, the expanded scene, I mean, in which Hurin defies Morgoth, um, that you can read in the Children of Hurin and that we get in the Narn uh, material in Unfinished Tales, is a remarkable, delightful scene, right? Um, I love the scene of Hurin's defiance of Morgoth. One of the really difficult, really painful things that Tolkien is working with, right, which runs through the entire Turin Turimbar story, right, is how is the curse of Morgoth involved, right? How much of the bad stuff that happens to Turin is the fault of his own bad choices? Clearly not zero, right? Um, but it's unsure how much, right? And how much is the effect of the curse by Morgoth? Uh, to what extent even are Turin's choices themselves influenced and affected by that? What, how much shadow is shadow that Turin brings and how much is shadow that um, has been cast over him? Um, and of course, as we think about that, as we talk about that, as we read through the Turin story, um, the horrible irony right, that this darkness, this shadow, this curse has come upon Hurin's family as a result of his perfectly appropriate uh, defiance of Morgoth, right? It, it's hard. It's painful to, um, to see Hurin's um, steadfastness reap such a reward. When Hurin is released... And we see Morgoth's shadow following him as it does here, as Manthor is perceiving in this passage. It's even more painful, right? It's worse, like a good deal worse, I think. Um, so first, focusing on what Manthor is saying to him, right? Manthor is not a Hardang fan. Hardang, of course, is the chieftain. He's not great. He, you know, so you'll remember he's already, he was rude to Hurin, prompting uh, which prompted Hurin to chuck a stool at his head, at which point he bound him hand and foot. You know, he he, he bound him hand and foot, which Manthor, by the way, is uh, disapproving of by itself, right? Like that was uh, uh, an evil deed of, of Hardang's to bind Hurin hand and foot and throw him into prison and everything else. Um, anyway... Uh, Manthor says, Hardang is a lesser man than his father. So he's like, Hardang, I'm not a fan, right? He's, he is a lesser man. He's not of, he, he is not a man of great character. He is not a man of noble capabilities, right? He's a, he's a, a lesser man. He is a small man, 
right? He um, is not great of heart, is not great of character, but I saw no evil in him till he heard of thy coming, he says. Um, thou bringest a shadow with thee, Hurinthalian, in which lesser shadows grow darker. Hardang's shadow was lesser. He wasn't a good leader. He wasn't a good person. But he wasn't horrible. He wasn't acting like this. He acted like this in response to Hurin. Hurin, this Hurin, the situation somehow seems to have brought it out of him, Manthor suggests. And Manthor sees in this the handiwork of Melkor. That this is Morgoth's shadow lies on him still. The thought of Morgoth has not forgotten thee. The malice of Morgoth is following him. He is telling Hurin that from what he can see, from what he has observed, Hurin is still or at least perhaps you could even say now, Hurin, you could even say actually Hurin is finally serving the ends of Morgoth. Now, remember, Tolkien as narrator has said this many times before. Remember, there's that little passage um, that Christopher kept in the Silmarillion, the one about him standing and looking out at the Akoriath and yelling for, Tur for, uh, for Turgon, right? And... But it was overheard, and like this was the first of the evils that was brought about, right? By you know the uh, the the he's gain like Morgoth is gaining Hurin, everything that he does from the moment he's released has been serving Morgoth's purposes. The narrator is pretty clear that get Hurin's every action is going to be a net gain for Morgoth so far, anyway, um, and. Uh, this is hard on Hurin, right? Understandably hard on Hurin. Um, dark words from a friend. Long I lived in the shadow, but I endured it, and I did not yield. He's like, am I, like, connected with the shadow? Heck yeah, right? I mean, I lived under the shadow for decades, but I endured it and did not yield. Now, here's the thing. Hurin's not wrong. I, I don't think Hurin's wrong. I don't think this is Hurin deceiving himself. He did endure it, and he did not yield. Hurin does, has not come around and has like, agreed to serve Morgoth. He is not willingly doing Morgoth's errands for him, right? Um, uh, yeah. Um, I endured it and did not yield. If there is any darkness upon me, it is only that grief beyond grief has robbed me of light. So notice he notice where he and Manthor are not seeing eye to eye here. Hurin is like, is there darkness around me? Yeah. Yeah, I am full. He's like, my heart is full of darkness. Like, you haven't seen what I've seen. I've been sitting for decades in a chair, chained by Morgoth taunted by Morgoth, forced to watch my family be destroyed by Morgoth's curse. Is there darkness in my heart? Oh yeah, grief beyond grief has robbed me of light. But in the shadow, I have no part. I have endured it, and I did not yield. I do not, did not, do not submit to the shadow. I have defied it, and 
But Manthor says, and yet, the thought of Morgoth has not forgotten thee. It follows behind thee. There is a shadow on you. And you are bringing it where you go. Um, despite his defiance. That Hurin's defiance should have um, no positive fruit? It's hard. That's hard. What is the fruit of Hurin's defiance? Um, it's, uh, it's hard. Um, yeah, that's really interesting. JJ is reminded of um, Aemir's words. For I hold you blameless in this matter as in all else, yet I knew not that Eowyn, my sister, was touched by any frost until she first looked on you. Though J.J. points out there's a different outcome there. Um, the way in which Aragorn um, brought frost to Eowyn. Now, of course, it's, it isn't the same, but it is an interesting connection. That would be an interesting little sort of comparison and contrast there. Um, thinking about Eowyn's situation. Eowyn's situation prior to Aragorn's coming, right? During the Wormtongue days. Um, she, too, was under a shadow and enduring it and not yielding to it. Um, and then she set free from that shadow. When Aragorn comes, right? And then this new shadow is put upon her. Um, again, it's not, um, uh, it's not the same situation, but it is an interesting comparison. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. No, again, I, 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 um, I agree, Emily, that the situation is not, is, is, is very far from identical. But the concept, it's still, it's interesting. Where I would want to do the comparison is thinking more, looking at Eowyn and Hurin. And looking especially at their um, different outcomes, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, that's interesting. But let's, we'll, we'll, we'll come back to this. So uh, here's the beginning of the moot. There was a great babble of voices, but at a horn call, silence fell, and the Halad entered, and he had many men of his household with him. The gate was closed behind him, and he paced slowly to the stone. Then he stood facing the assembly, and hallowed the moot, according to custom. First he named Manwe and Mandos, after the manner which the Adain had learned from the Eldar. And then, speaking the old tongue of the folk, which was now out of daily use, he declared that the moot was duly set, being the three hundred and first moot of Brethil, called to give judgment in a grave matter. When, as custom was, all the assembly cried in the same tongue, We are ready, he took his seat upon the stone, changed to, took a seat upon the angbor, and called in the speech of Beleriand to men that stood by, Sound the horn, let the prisoner be brought before us. The horn sounded twice, but for some time no one entered, and the sound of angry voices could be heard outside the fence. At length the gate was thrust open, and six men came in, bearing Hurin between them. 
I am brought by violence and misuse, he cried. I will not walk slave-fettered to any moot upon earth, not though elven king should sit there. And while I am bound thus, I deny all authority and justice to your dooms. But the men set him on the ground before the stone and held him there by force. All right. Um, again, this is... Can you can you see the things that he's doing here? I just, just love it. Um, and how he's developing the... Um, their ritual customs, their linguistic customs. No, I mean, of course, that particularly jumps out. Um, his declaration, speaking the old tongue of the folk, of, of his folk, right? So he's not speaking Quenya here. He's speaking the old language of the Haladin, which they spoke before they came to Beleriand. Um... So there's this old human language that they st they and they still use it, but they only use it in this ritual call and response. His declaration of uh, the beginning of the moot, right, um, and what its purpose was, and then the people responding in the same tongue, "We are ready." Um, and then, of course, he, then then he transitions, right? Then he code switches and speaks and and says in the speech of Beleriand. Sound the horn, let the prisoner be brought before us. Um, and Fanaro, this is the chronologically earliest, that is, in the chronology of Middle-earth, the chronologically earliest invocation of the Valar by humans that we have seen in this way. Now, again, Hurin invokes Manway when uh, defying Morgoth, right? Um, but as far as this kind of a ritual activity, yeah. And actually, the you know, the phrase that jumps out at me most more than anything else, which the Adain had learned from the Eldar, right? First, he named Manwe and Mandos after the manner in which the Adain had learned from the Eldar. Really? Tell me more. Um, so the Eldar named Manwe and Mandos? Does Tolkien here mean... Based on what they learned about Manwe and Mandos from the Eldar, they called upon them. Or does he mean um, the manner of their calling upon Manwe and Mandos was modeled after the way in which the Eldar called upon Manwe and, Man and, and, and Mandos, right? Um, I, uh, um, I don't think that it's clear which one of those he means. I think that's very significant because any kind of sort of ritual invocation um, is not real uh, by the elves isn't really something that we've seen. Um, uh, opening, I mean, it's almost like opening the moot with prayer, right? Opening the moot with an invocation of Manway and Mandos. Um, uh, I, 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 that's really interesting, right? Now, of course, Manway and Mandos are obviously particularly chosen, right? Manway as the, the you know the the high king, right? Uh, of uh, of of Arda, um, you know the the vicegerent of Iluvatar uh, on Arda in Arda, and then Mandos as the doomsman, right? So they're they're going to be doing judgment. He as leader is calling the people together in this big ring, right? And they're going to do a judgment while there. Manway and Mandos both seem very appropriate folks to invoke under those circumstances. Um, but, um, but yeah, so 
do the Eldar do the same thing? Do they invoke the names of Manwe and Mandos when they're going to pass judgment on something? When, you know, when they have some kind of formal judicial process? That's really interesting, because, again, I don't recall. We, ha we, we, we know them. We see them calling out to Varda Fanaro, as you point out. Um, but even that's not exactly ritual, right? I mean, like the song to Elbereth, we see them singing to Elbereth and invoking her by name a couple times, right? Gildor and his folks are doing it singing that song as they wander through the Shire, minding their own business. And then, of course, we hear them singing the song to Elbereth again in the Hall of Fire in Rivendell, right? But in neither of those cases is that invocation in a sort of ritual um, circumstance, right? Those are songs, sung respectfully, right? Um, but uh, not invoked under a particular... Uh, as part of a ritual like this is clearly explicitly part of a ritual. So that's really interesting. Does this hint at the idea that Tolkien is imagining? Because, uh, of course, a lot of the evidence that we have for elves not participating in such rituals is negative. That is just the fact that we don't see them. We don't catch them at it. Right. Um, uh, we know they don't do things like build churches. Right. But um, uh, but it, is it possible, right, that they do more of this kind of ritual thing than we know of or than we might suspect? Or at least that here in, you know, the later days uh, of his own life, I mean, Tolkien is beginning to kind of move in that direction in his own imagination about the elves. I don't know. But anyway, that was really cool. Um, yeah. And yeah, uh, 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 Tirithon, I agree. Tolkien uses Eldar here, which is interesting, because that could mean either the Sindar or the Noldor. I'm surprised most of the Noldor would still be willing to do that after being kicked out in the Kinslaying. Um, yeah, well, uh, yeah, I guess it depends on how much of a grudge, you know, you hold for the Doom of Mandos, right? Uh, you know, are you, um, um, are they, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I don't, we know, you know, I mean, Gildor uh, is a Noldo, too, and he's invoking Elbereth in his song. So, um, you know, I don't think that they are totally Valar shy, even though they're now exiles. Right. Remember, Gildor is like, we are exiles, cheerfully, he says to Frodo and company. Um, so uh, they seem to be over it <laughs> to some extent <laughs> by the third age anyway. Are they over it already? You know, in the first age? I don't really know, but, but I agree. It is interesting. Um, uh, the fact that, um, yeah, and you're right, Senalisha, Fingen, Fingen's invocation of Manwe when he's trying to rescue Mithros, that's very soon after both the doom, after the departure, and even sooner after the doom, and yet he's already doing it. Um, so, um, so yeah, yeah, I do, I do think that that's, um, uh, it does show that the Nolar don't seem to be shy about invoking, um, invoking the, the Valar. And yes, Halleth's people were the ones next door to Doriath. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So again, that's, but I, I get noticed that you know, Manwe and Mandos, that's the, that's the, it's Quenya, right? They're using their Quenya names. 
um, which suggests Noldor influence to me. Um, but anyway, yeah. Um, okay. Um, notice the um, sort of sour note that Hurin strikes here. Like we, on the one hand, we get this lovely sort of ritual, right? Everything is proceeding in order. We are seeing here um, the the modern tradition of the Halethrim. Um, we are seeing the, uh, uh, the and the ways in which that has been deliberately structured in order to recall their earlier days, right, with the language and stuff. So it's 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 invoking the sense of their own tradition. It's invoking the Valar as they've learned from the Eldar. So we see like uh, their calls back to the their own pre Beleriand roots. We see the uh, incorporation of the things that they have learned as a dine in Beleriand from the Eldar. Um, uh, we see, you know, their dedication to orderly justice and everything else. Um, but uh, then they drag Hurin in. Six men come in bearing Hurin between them. So they like they physically carry Hurin in and he protests and whether his so like one way or another his protest which is justified right um he is being forced to walk slave fettered um uh while i am bound thus i deny all authority and justice to your doom so this is not starting off well and again manthor is going to explain as he does um that huron's right about this right however this uh the both the description of the orderliness of the moot and the breaking of its order um, are both things that are emphasized there. Okay. Um, this is I love this is from um, Manthor's closing statement um, in defense of Hurin. I love his the posture that he takes here. Um, Hurin has been uh, accused of attacking, uh, attacking Hardang, right? attacking the the Halad, attacking the chieftain, using um, a weapon, namely a stool, hurled at his head, right? Um, uh, the uh, counselor for the defense here does not contest that. Hurin did, in fact, chuck a stool at the head of Hardang. Um, here is his defense. But my masters, ill deeds may be provoked. Let any one of you in thought set himself in the place of Hardang, son of Hundad. Well, here comes Hurin, lord of Dorlomen, your kinsman before you, head of a great house, a man whose deeds are sung by elves and men. But he is now grown old dispossessed, grief-laden, travel-worn. He asks to see you. There you sit, at ease in your chair. You do not rise. You do not speak to him. But you eye him up and down as he stands until he sinks to the floor. Then of your pity and courtesy you cry, Bring the old Carl a stool. Oh, shame and wonder, he flings it at your head. 
Oh, shame and wonder, rather I say that you so dishonor your chair, that you so dishonor your hall, that you so dishonor the folk of Brethil. My masters, I freely admit that it would have been better if the Lord Hurin had shown patience, marvelous patience. Why did he not wait to see what further slights he must endure? Yet, as I stood in hall and saw all this, I wondered, and I still wonder, and ask you to tell me, how do you like such manners in this man that we have made Halad of Brethil? Great uproar arose at this question, until Manthor held up his hand, and suddenly all was still again. But under cover of the noise, Hardung had drawn near to, a, to Avranc to speak with him, and surpri surprised by the silence, they spoke too loud, so that Manthor and others also heard Hardung say, I would I had not hindered thy shooting. And Avranc answered, I will seek a time yet. But Manthor proceeded. I am answered. Such manners do not please you, I see. Then what would you have done with the caster of the stool? Bound him? Put a halter on his neck? Shut him in a cave? Fettered him? Drugged his food? And at last dragged him hither and called for his death? Or would you set him free? Or would you, maybe, ask pardon or command this halad to do so? So Manthor is a pretty good lawyer, uh, if anything else. Um, notice uh, both what his approach is and what the effect of that choice is. That is, of Tolkien's choice, to have him take this approach. Um, he, is he is going through the scene, right? He's going through the scene of uh, Hurin's humiliation and the throwing of the stool. And he asks everyone there to put themselves in, to imagine themselves into the situation. But he doesn't, and you might suspect, um, you know, where I expected that second sentence to go, but my master's ill deeds may be provoked. Let any one of you in thought set himself in the place of, I expected him to say Huren, right? Um, that seemed to be the logical appeal. Imagine that you were Huren. Imagine that you had been treated the way that Hurin was treated. How would that make you feel? Right? That is, it seems to me, the kind of natural angle uh, that, I would, uh, that I would sort of immediately take there. But he doesn't do it. He doesn't ask the people to have sympathy with Hurin. He asks them to have sympathy with Hardang. Put yourself in the place of Hardang son of Hundad. And this, of course, is more telling in several different ways. What he's appealing to is not, um, what should we do to this person who has been ill-treated, right? How would you feel if you had been ill-treated like that? How would you have acted? Instead, he says, imagine that you are Hardang. And, and, and so indeed, what, he, what he's doing, what the situation he creates is... What, what are the mores of our people, right? What, what does our, what do our ways teach us should be done? It enables this comparison and contrast, right? He, he lays out this very clear uh, sense, um, not of how one might react out of mere empathy or compassion, with Hurin and his sufferings, right? Instead, this enables Manthor to walk us through how would a proper member of the Helethrim, a right-thinking member of the Helethrim, 
see this situation. Let us re replay this scene, but from the point of view of people more like, um, more like Menthor. Here comes Hurin, Lord of Dornum. I love the way that he lays this out. Keep in mind who we're talking about here, right? Here comes Hurin, Lord of Dorloman, your kinsman. Um, two major, um, two major things that he emphasizes. This is a foreign dignitary who is also a kinsman, the head of a great house. Oh, and P.S., a man whose deeds are sung by elves and men. It's not just a lord of Dorloman. It's not just a lord of Dor Dorloman who is your kinsman. It's a lord of Dorloman who is your kinsman and who is Hurin, whose deeds are sung by elves and men. Right. So what does he what is Manthor telling us here about the Halethrim society that they care? Uh, about the songs that are sung by elves and men, um, that there is an expectation that they should honor those who are worthy of honor, who's, who have done deeds of praise. That's one thing that he is clearly asserting. Two, that there should be respect given to the head of a great house. And three, uh, your kinsmen maybe also deserve some consideration. Um, then, a new angle. But he has grown old, dispossessed, grief-laden, travel-worn. There's a pity angle here, too. But, of course, he makes the pity the more poignant. Uh, you know, he could have said, look, any aged, dispossessed, grief-laden, travel-worn person who came into our land should probably be treated better than Hurin was treated. But when... A legendary hero uh, who is the head of a great house and also your kinsman is the person in question. Um, then you've got both both respect and duty and also pity, right? Should all be pointing in the same direction. And then he replays the scene, but he replays it in the second person, inviting them to imagine themselves performing the horrible... Again, not imagine yourselves being the recipient of the action. This is not how would you feel if Hardang treated you like this, but rather how revolting do you find it when you imagine yourself doing... When you hear somebody accuse you of doing the things that Hardang did. Um, and, you know, I think that that's... Um, uh, Really, really interesting. Um, yeah, great, uh, interesting exchange. Fanara was saying outside of Fanor's thraldom speech in Valinor, I can't remember any other time a speaker has appealed to the sentiment of the people like this. Yeah, it's not a very common move. I agree with Alyssa um, that uh, we do see the master of Lake Town uh, do that, right? Um, but why, oh people, right, when he stirs everybody up, up against Thorin? Um, uh, trying to uh, defend himself, right? Um, but um, but anyway, yeah, he um, he he certainly does not do that very often. Um, uh, yeah, um, but again, notice how even he continues it the second person, even through being the victim of the crime. Um, 
namely being assaulted by having a, a stool thrown at your head, right? He flings it at your head. Um, it's a, this is again, it's a, this shows, I mean, I think that what we're supposed to be, what we as readers are supposed to be doing here is hearing that the Helethrim, the kind of honor that they have, the kind of society that they have is such that this is what they find most unbearable. If you want to really drive them to action, don't ask them to imagine wrong being done to them and then be outraged, right? To then share the outrage on behalf of this person because you wouldn't want this wrong thing done to them. It's going to be even more powerful to invite them to imagine the unimaginable of them acting in the horrible way, right? The way that Hardang acted. And so therefore, the way in which... Manthor creates this, uh, makes it clear to everybody, viscerally clear to everybody that how Hardang, son of Hundad, acted um, is just unforgivable, right? Like it's it's to show them how far he has fallen, how um, radically he has departed from the values of their society. Um, how do you like such manners in this man? that we have made Halad of Brethil. He ha- he in, but through this tactic completely turns the trial around. This is now no longer even a trial of Hurin. This is now a trial of Hardang. Um, and, you know, that's precisely what he asks, is for a judgment not about the guilt or innocence of Hurin. That, of course, in its sense is not up for debate, right? That, I mean, Hurin's pleading guilty to chucking a stool at his head, right? Manthor, at least, um, is uh, acknowledging it, right? Um, but, um, yeah. Um, yeah, I agree, uh, Tomas. It is interesting. Uh, the um, hurl something at, uh, like, if, uh, if someone is saying really offensive things to you, to chuck something heavy at their face, does seem to, you know, um, uh, run in the family. Uh, well, you, um, you know, as my wife always says, you don't take after strangers, right? Um, yeah, yeah. And but Alyssa, I think that you're right. Uh, some faces uh, just need to get hit, like Bill Fernie's, right? So it is true. There might be, a, it might be not a question exactly of how alike are Turin and Turin. But how punchable are Cyrus and uh, uh, and Hardang's faces? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sam is following in the fine tradition. I, Arthur, I think that's one of the things that um, there's almost um, like a little Easter egg joke uh, when um, uh, isn't it Pippin who, when they pass Bill Fernie's derelict house on the way home, says. I don't suppose you killed him with that apple, Sam. And then Sam says, I'm not so hopeful, right? Um, uh, you know, I, I mean, it seems funny that, like, you hit somebody in the face with an apple and and, and caused their death. But, um, I mean, it wasn't an apple. It was a golden cup, but it kind of, uh, it kind of, kind of works. Um, I mean, you know, there's precedent for... Throwing something at somebody's face and killing them with it. So, you know. Anyway. Um, okay. 
Uh, let's keep going. Hurin is given the floor after uh, everybody starts shouting that he should be freed. It's very clear what the will of the people is. By the way, did you notice that um, I, the Halathrim are a democracy? Uh, they are um, that all of these major items are up for a vote by all of the people, right? The people's chieftains are democratically elected. And um, though it does seem to still go within the line, right? But when there's more than one person in the line, Manthor and, and Hardang in this case, um, there's an election. Um, but um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah. Anyway, um, Vanar says it's funny how if you throw something at the head, they live, but if you punch them like Helm, that does more damage. Um, yeah, you can totally kill somebody by punching them in the head, like that's, and I'm pretty sure he does. Doesn't Helm punch uh, what's his face? Blanking Wolf's dad. Uh, I'm blanking on the name of the dude that Helm punches to death. Um, but, um, but yeah, yeah, no, you can punch, you, you can punch somebody to death. Um, Freka, thank you, Vanaro, appreciate it. Freka, yeah. Um, yep, that's very possible. Um, anyway, so Hurin now takes the floor, because remember, he said that he had an errand. We've been, we, we've been, uh, teased about this errand all the way along, you know, he, he tells his people, uh, before he gets to Brethel, we got to go to Brethel. I've got an errand there, right? Um, and he said when he came into the court that he had an errand, and we've never learned what the errand, um, uh, what the errand was, right? So we finally get Hurin's errand. Are ye ashamed that ye let Turin, my son, die for you? That two only dared to go with him to face the terror of the worm? That none dared to go down to succor him when the battle was over, though the worst evils might thus have been stayed? Ashamed ye may be, but this is not my charge. I do not ask that any in this land should match the son of Hurin in valor. But I forgive those griefs. But if I forgive those griefs, shall I forgive this? Hear me, men of Brethel. There lies by the standing stone that you raised an old beggar woman. Long she sat in your land without fire, without food, without pity. Now she is dead. Dead. She was Morwen, my wife. Morwen is Elwyn. The Lady Elven Fair, who bore Turin the Slayer of Glaurung, she is dead. If ye, who have some ruth, cry to me that you are guiltless, then I ask who bears the guilt? By whose command was she thrust out to starve at your doors like an outcast dog? Did your chieftain contrive this? So I believe. For would he not have dealt with me in like manner if he could? Such are his gifts, dishonor, starvation, poison. Have you no part in this? Will you not work all his will? Then how long, masters of Bretha, will you endure him? How long will you suffer this man called Hardang to sit in your chair? Um, okay. Um, that's quite a speech. Can I just say, I... The speeches in this story are really good, right? This is a, this is a really good... 
that middle, that ashamed ye may be paragraph. Oh man, that is uh, that is tough right there. Um, a few things to notice here. First off, Turin is on thin ice in the first paragraph here. Are ye ashamed that ye let Turin, my son, die for you? That only that two only dared go with him to face the terror of the worm? That none dared go down to succor him when the battle was over, though the worst evils might thus have been stayed? The reason I say uh, uh, the reason I say that he's on thin ice. Uh, how does he know any of this? Well, he, he seems pretty well informed. Right? Um... But where is he getting his information? Yeah, thank you. JJ gave me the p passage about Helm. It doesn't say where he hits him. Just that he smote him such a blow with his fist that he fell back stunned and died soon after. Yep. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, he gets all of, he's gotten all of his information at least through Morgoth. Right? Um, does Hurin know what he thinks he knows about this? There are some things that are clearly true, right? That two only dared go with him to face the terror of the worm. Yeah, fair, fair. That's true. That's true. That's not a good look. Though the worst evils might thus have been stayed. Uh, you think? Hurin, Really? Which, which, which evils? I mean, the killing of Brandir probably wouldn't have happened had there been more, you know, chaperones around. Had there been fewer people running into other people in the woods and stuff. But, um, but really? You think? Um, bit too late on the whole, like, incest suicide thing, right? Not sure. I mean... I'm not sure what he's suggesting here. How, which evils are he, is he calling the worst evils? And how might they have been stayed? Does he mean somebody might have been there to prevent Neonor committing suicide? It's possible that that's what he means. Um, uh, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know, but I, I'm not sure that he's right. And the very first sentence is the most sketchy of all, in my opinion. Are ye ashamed that ye let Turin my son die for you? Um, no, not really. I mean, he was in, he was large and in charge, and he said he was going to go fight the dragon. Like, we didn't even suggest that. That was his idea, right? Um, it's true, only two of us dared to go with him, and that's a little bit shameful, right? But um, uh, but are they ashamed? What was the alternative? What, what were they all going to go in, in a gang, right? Every man, woman, and child in Brethel was going to go fling themselves upon the dragon? Turin himself didn't allow that. Turin forbade anybody else from coming with him other than the volunteers, of which, again, perhaps it might have been well had there been more. But um, uh, he's not, at the very least, Turin is not being fair in his analysis here. But again, how would you expect that? 
right? I mean, what would you expect to see? How could it have been different in that way? Um, so I'm thinking back to the earlier passage while Hurin was in prison, when Manthor was talking about the thought of Morgoth that is still following him, about the shadow of Morgoth that still lies upon him, Hurin seems unaware. Like, on the one hand, like has Hurin endured and defied the shadow? Well, yes, but he seems to have almost... Um, uh, almost forgotten that uh, what he knows he's learned from Morgoth. Yes, you can easily say being forced to watch the horrible things that happened to his family, that was him being afflicted by darkness and him holding up and not becoming evil himself as a consequence of enduring that horrible thing. Yeah, but he doesn't seem to realize that his own viewing, right, his own reception of this information has itself been twisted, which seems manifestly to be the case. Um, uh, yeah. Um, and this sounds horrible. On the one hand, his, his accusation is totally plausible. Morwen died in your lands by the standing stone that you raised. And she died without fire, without food, without pity, in your land. Um, and then he accuses Hardang of contriving it. And it's a very plausible argument. Such are his gifts. Dishonor, starvation, poison. Yeah, fair. Fair. That's correct. Um, would he not have dealt with me in like manner if he could? Yeah. Yeah. Seems that way. Um, let's cast him out and let him starve. That was pretty much explicitly Hardang's plan. Right? So this is totally plausible. The only problem, and here, Alyssa, is where I think it's, uh, it's a little bit ambiguous. Right? It certainly does suggest... Potentially, that there is some decline in their, the, the social mores of the people of Brethel, that they let this happen. But um, none of them knew it, in fact. We'll come back to it. Um, the fight breaks out. Um, Hurin is inciting them all to arrest Hardung. Basically, again, what was what began as the trial of Hurin is now emphatically the trial of Hardung. Uh, such that he is now running away and calling upon his loyal retainers to defend him. There's now, all of a sudden, we're kinslaying in the middle of the moot, right? In the middle of the, uh, in, in the middle of their judicial proceedings, bloodshed has broken out, which is more or less explicitly what this moot thing is designed to prevent. Instead of solving our problems by um, just assaulting each other, let us all come together and do this in an orderly and democratic fashion, Right. I agree, JJ. Let us not reenact that at Mythmoot. Yeah, that's 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 not a good reenactment uh, candidate. Um, they're retreating. Some are defending 
uh, some are defending him and they, they, and then they finally chase him back to the hall and they've, uh, they first besiege it and then set it on fire. Right. The sun set and none came from the hall. And when it was dark, they, remember, they, they give them an ultimatum, right? We're going to set the hall on fire and burn it down around you uh, if you don't come out by dark. And when it was dark, the assailants came back into the garth bearing the wood and they piled it against the walls of the hall. Then some bearing flaming pine torches ran across the garth to put fire in the faggots. One was shot to his death, but others reached the piles, and soon they began to blaze. Manthor stood aghast at the ruin of the hall, and the wicked deed of the burning of men. Out of the dark days of our past it comes, he said, before we turned our faces west. A shadow is upon us. And he felt one lay a hand on his shoulder, and he turned and saw Hurin, who stood behind him. Like the shadow of Morgoth behind Hurin, isn't it? With a grim face, watching the kindling of the fires, and Hurin laughed. A strange folk are ye, he said, now cold, now hot. First wrath, then ruth, under your chieftain's feet, or at his throat. Down with Hardang, up with Manthor. Wilt thou go up? The folk must choose, said Manthor, and Hardang still lives. Not for long, I hope, said Hurin. Um... First Wrath, then Ruth. Uh, Hurin is commenting on the changefulness here. Again, notice how Manthor claimed that, told Hurin that Hurin himself brought a shadow with him. Hurin's own observation is like, gosh, y'all are funny. Right? I mean, first you're act whoops. First you're acting one way, then you suddenly act another way. Right? Uh you know, you're first you're under your chieftain's feet, and then you're at his throat. How odd, right? Um Yeah, isn't it odd though? It is almost as if some kind of external force is acting upon them. It is almost as if the will of Morgoth is being done. You know what I couldn't help but think of? Uh, from the moment the fighting broke out at the moot, I couldn't help but think of Gandalf's words. Uh, remember when he comes into the... like There are two things that made me think of the pyre of Denethor here, right? First was Gandalf's comment, right? When he sees the dead servants um, uh, uh, on the way in, he says, work of the enemy? Exactly. Uh, um Loyalty divided in confusion of hearts. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. Um, and um, uh, no. And Arthur, no. This is not the only set of moots in Tolkien outside of Fangorn. Um, the Shire has a moot as one that hasn't happened in a long time at the time of the beginning of the Lord of the Rings. Um, but the hobbits do moots also. Um, it clearly is a word uh, that means like general kind of political gathering. Um, uh, which is not uh, unique. So, in fact, Arthur, I think the other, I think it's the other way around. Um, that, like, I, I, I think that tree. I mean, obviously, Treebeard is translating, but I think that Treebeard uses the word moot for the ant moot uh, because he's 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 rendering that into their language and dialect. Um, so he's using a word that hobbits would understand within their framework in order to describe what, however, the ants think of this gathering that they do. Um, but, um, anyway, okay. Uh, yeah. So, um, 
No, Karina, we have no evidence whatsoever that Morrowind was shut out without succor. That is Hurin's conclusion. Again, notice I... There was a reason I was drawing attention to his questionable... The questionable conclusions that he is drawing from what he saw of the end of Turin's career here in Brethel, right? What he concludes about them, I think, is wrong. Um, at least, it's certainly mixed, right? He draws a conclusion, which is a plausible conclusion. She was in the middle of your lands, and she died because nobody would help her, because all y'all turned away from her. That's a logical conclusion. Given how he's treated by Hardang, the conclusion that, well, you wanted to cast me out and let me die of exposure in a ditch. So it seems likely you did the same to my wife before this, right? Um, very logical. Just as most, at least, of the things that he says in the first paragraph seem to me very logical. Well, all of them are potentially logical, right? And yet they're wrong. And we're going to find, uh, Karina, that um, uh, he's quite wrong about Morwen as well. Anyway, Hurin's own words suggest the fact that the shadow is at work here. Um, what has been the result of his coming? The result of his coming has been, they are literally right now setting fire to the hall, like the central ruling hall of the people. Um, they first, they perform a kinslaying at the moot, and then they immediately, they, 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 they run, they do not walk, they run straight from the kinslaying at the moot to setting the ruling house on fire. Um, this is, this doesn't seem like a win, right? Hardang's a jerk. Um... Hardang may even deserve to lose his position, right? Um, is this going well? Is this, you know, is this a heroic accomplishment by Hurin? No. No. And again, he himself is close to perceiving the truth. He perceives, wow, what a sudden and radical change. Um, something... Something seems to have influenced everybody around here. Y'all are acting funny now, right? Very differently from how you were acting before. Now, it's not completely bad. That is the change. It was not good for them to go along with Hard Hardung was being horrible. Genuinely deserved to be rebuked and corrected, maybe even booted uh, from being hullad. Um But neither, you know... Hurin doesn't say it, but it's pretty clear. Um, to be under your chieftain's feet is not a good look. To be at your chieftain's throat, that's not better at all, actually. Right? Um, there's a problem here. Manthor is trying desperately to hold on, right? The folk must choose. And Hardang still lives. Can we please uh, reassert some kind of judicial procedure here? Right? 
no, not really. Um, so, um, Hardang, when captured after being shot, um, being injured and then captured, uh, accuses Manthor of bringing this about, uh, bringing about his own destruction. Totally true. Manthor did that. Um, have you not, said Hardang, then you must be sure of my death. I think that you have always begrudged that the folk chose me to the chair and not you. Think what you will, said Manthor, and he turned away. Then Hardang was aware of Hurin, who was behind, and Hurin stood looking down on Hardang, a dark form in the gloom, but the light of the fire was on his face, and there Hardang saw no pity. You are a mightier man than I, Hurin of Hithlam, he said. I had such fear of your shadow that all wisdom and largesse forsook me. But now I do not think that any wisdom or mercy would have saved me from you, for you have none. You came to destroy me, and you at least have not denied it. But your last lie against me, I cast back upon you ere I die. Never! But with that, blood gushed from his mouth, and he fell back and said no more. Oh, man, so the moral of the story is... If you are going to cast back someone's lie in their teeth before you die, lead with that, actually. Um, if you put it climactically at the end of a long paragraph, it might not pan out. I think this is uh, the lesson of this passage is how to rhetorically structure your final defiant words when you're bleeding out. So um, I think we've all learned something here tonight. Um, but... Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, no, monologuing with your dying breath is, I think it is a good idea, actually, Fanaro. I, I always, I, I always have a hard time with this. In movies, when someone is dying, like when someone is seriously injured and they're dying and they're trying to talk, right? People are always like, shh, shh, oh, just, just, just rest, just be quiet. Forget that! Right? I mean, if I'm dying, like, what, what, what do you, what do you, what are you waiting for? Right. I mean, if somebody's dying, I'm like, no, talk faster talk to say more. Right. Come on. Um, but um, anyway, um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, more monologuing, monologuing more efficiently with your dying breath. See, that's my advice. Um, but um, anyway, anyway, OK, notice, see how this is being set up. The whole thing, like, notice how this is the talk smarter, not harder. There you go. Um, notice, um, uh, notice how this is set up. Look back to the, the previous one, right? Manthor staring there, looking at the ruin of the hall. Like, fire is licking up the sides of the great hall um, of his people. And not only is the, is there the political center of their culture being destroyed at this moment, right? But it is being destroyed in a a, a horrible, terrifying act. Um, the wicked deed of the burning of men. We're gonna we're gonna burn all these people alive inside the great hall. That is horrible. Um, oh, I didn't even say what the other thing, of course, about the pyre of Denethor. Out of the dark days of our past, it comes before we turned our faces west, right? Um, uh, only the heathen kings. Uh, did 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 thus right? Um, except this time, it's not about self-immolation; it's about immolating others, right? Um, it's not that this kind of thing is unprecedented, but 
it's not only not only have we not acted this way since we came to Beleriand, we haven't acted this way since we turned our faces west. In other words, this dates back all the way to the time when our ancestors were still worshipping Morgoth out in the east. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so, anyway. But the way the scene is visually set up. Here's Manthor facing the burning hall, thinking about that's that a shadow is upon us. He's just literally said, a shadow is upon us. And then we get the whole, even though this is described so briefly, the idea of Hurin, you know, he told Hurin that the shadow is pursuing him, is behind him, right? And now there's Hurin behind him, putting his hand on his shoulder, and he looks back, and there's Hurin behind him. And the fires that are lighting up are lighting up Hurin's face, and he laughs, Right? This is a horrible look. It's like Hurin is the... The shadow has now come upon them. And Hurin is the shadow. Like, Hurin is cast in the role of the shadow here. And Hardang sees it too. Um, again, notice physically, the physical description. Um, Manthor turns away from Hardang. Then Hardang was aware of Hurin who was behind. So Hurin is still behind... Manthor, and Hurin stood looking down on Hardang, a dark form in the gloom, but the light of the fire was on his face, and there Hardang so, saw no pity. Um, that's bad. That's a really bad... This, you know, he is a dark form in the gloom. Um, Manthor's words about the shadow following him, about the shadow that he is bringing, it is clearly true. And Hardang then says it. I had such fear of your shadow that all wisdom and largesse forsook me. Yeah, I acted badly. I acted badly out of fear of your shadow. Had Hurin not come, Hardang would have remained a small-minded, not very good ruler. A lesser man than his father's. But he would not have done any of the things that he did. Um, I do not think that any wisdom or mercy would have saved me from you. You see the significance of that? He's like, okay, I acted badly and out of fear. Uh, he was trying to cast... He, he wanted to drive Hurin out because he was afraid of his shadow. And of course, by trying to drive him out, he brought the shadow upon him, Right? Gosh, oh man, isn't that exactly like what always happened with Turin, right? I'm going to try to make a decision which is going to bring it about, right? I, Hardang was ensnared in the same thing, right? Made a bad call, as Turin did so many times, right? Made a bad call. Um, but was trapped. And now he's like, yeah, it was hopeless. I don't think that any wisdom or mercy would have saved me from you. So yes, I brought this upon myself by, in my folly, and uh, you know, and my lack of generosity, my, my 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 folly and my uncivility towards you, I brought this upon myself. But had I treated you with wisdom and mercy, I'd have ended up in a burning building one way or the other anyway, right? Just the fact that you came here, 
brought destruction upon our people. And I couldn't have done anything differently. It's almost like Hardong, when he dies, has a clearer view of the curse of Morgoth and of its operation upon him than Turin almost ever did, right? Um, but then he fails to cast his last lie back on him. Um, final discussion after this. This is Manthor again, of course. Then Hurin Hadorian, out of the darkness of your woe, know this. My lord, so great a grief and so great a horror of the things that they're... Wait, hang on. My lord. He's addressing Hurin as my lord. My lord. So great a grief and so great a horror of the things that came to pass is upon us that no man and no woman since the setting up of the stone has ever again gone nigh to that place. Nay, the Lord Orame himself might sit by that stone with all his hunt about him, and we should not know. Not unless he blew his great horn, and even that summons we should refuse. But if Mandos the just spake, would you not hear him? said Hurin. Now some shall go thither, if you have any ruth. Or would you let her lie there till her bones are white? Will that cleanse your land? Nay, nay, said Manthor, I will find some men of great heart and some women of mercy, and you shall lead us thither, and we will do as you bid. But it is a long road to wend, and this day is now old in evil. A new day is needed. Um, okay. Hardang was guilty of how he treated Hurin, but he was innocent of Morwen's death. All of them were. He was like, look, we... I'm sorry your wife died. None of us knew that she was there. I mean, she was literally sitting in the one place no single human being in this entire land would ever go. I love this thing about Orame, right? Um, not only would nobody here know that your wife was there, but if Lord Orame and the entire wild hunt was <laughs> circling around the Standing Stone, we wouldn't know it, right? Um, only if he called his horn and then we wouldn't answer it. By the way, don't, don't you love that? Right. Um, that, um, uh, the, um, the thing, uh, the thing about like that, how much this sounds like how the standing stone sounds like the paths of the dead. And the sounding of the horn sounds like Aragorn sounding the horn to summon the dead to the Stone of Erech, right? Um, uh, I, I love the, the sort of similarities there. There are so many ways in which you can hear this kind of echoing, distantly echoing. I'm not saying it's a reference to it exactly, but this sort of distant echoes of the Lord of the Rings, right? You can tell this is written after the Lord of the Rings. Um, but... Um, but yeah, this is, um, this is, so Hurin was wrong, understandable. Uh, his conclusion was not a, a dumb conclusion, but it was wrong. There was a thing he didn't know. And the thing he didn't know was the fact that the place in where, I mean, from where he was standing, Morwen comes this standing stone, which they erected. So like, he know, I know they've been here. Right. Because they put up the stone and this is in the middle of their lands. But uh, they didn't do anything about it. So they're guilty. Very logical. Just as the things that he said about Turin's death 
are logical in one sense, but they're twisted. This was twisted too. Morrowind's death was not their fault, not even Hardang's fault. Um, he's been blinded. And yes, Tomas, I think it extremely clear that the curse of Morgoth is still at work. Morgoth's eyes are still upon him. Hurin, that is. Out of the darkness of your woe, know this, says Manthor. I know that there's a shadow upon you. You said there was a shadow, the shadow of your grief, right? Yeah, yeah. I honor your grief and the shadow that is in your heart because of your grief beyond grief. But let me tell you, you're wrong. Let me explain to you why no one was guilty of neglecting Morwen. Yeah, yeah, we'll go and bury her. Of course we will. That's the right thing to do, and we're going to do the right thing now that we know what it is, right? Um, will that cleanse your land? Of what, Hurin? What does their land need to be cleansed of? I, I, Hurin has brought the shadow with him. Now, then we get the stone. Then they desired to do her honor in death. And some said, this is a dark place. Let us lift her up and bring the Lady Morwen to the Garth of the Graves and lay her among the house of Holleth, with whom she had kinship. They want to bury her in their burial ground. But Hurin said, nay, Neonor is not here, but it is fitter that she should lie here near her son than with any strangers. So she would have chosen. Therefore they made a grave for Morwen upon Cabad Nidermoth, on the west side of the stone. And when the earth was laid upon her, they carved on the stone, Here lies also Morwen Evelwen. And while some sang in the old tongue the laments that long ago had been made for those of their people who had fallen on the march far beyond the mountains. So after they turned their faces to the west, but before they arrived in Beleriand. And while they sang, there came a gray rain, and all that desolate place was heavy with grief, and the roaring of the river was like the mourning of many voices. And when all was ended, they turned away, and Hurin went bowed on his staff. But it is said that after that day, fear left that place, though sorrow remained, and it was ever leafless and bare. But until the end of Beleriand, women of Brethil would come with flowers in spring and berries in autumn and sing there a while of the grey lady who sought in vain for her son. And a seer and harp player of Brethil, Glirhuin, made a song saying the stone of the hapless should not be defiled by Morgoth nor ever thrown down, not though the sea should drown all the land as after indeed befell, and still Tol Morwen stands alone in the water beyond the new coasts that were made in the days of the wrath of the Valar. But Hurin does not lie there, for his doom drove him on, and the shadow still followed him. Um, yes, it is the stone of the hapless, as they call it. Um, they do not have hap. This doesn't. Um, this means something quite similar, I think, to when Gorlim is called the unhappy. Um, uh, hap means luck. If you are hapless, you're luckless. If you're happy, you're full of luck, right? Um, 
I, um, I still am pretty convinced that this is why there are so many uh, like Chinese restaurants called like Happy Garden and stuff like that. Because I think they're, it's a little translation. I think it's lucky that they mean, but they're saying happy, um, which is, which is a translation. It's true. It's just not in modern English. Um, but um, yeah. Uh, okay. Um Remember what, um, so yeah, the hapless, why are they hapless? They're un, they're, they're unhappy, but they're unlucky, right? They, they had all of their fortune was bad fortune. Um, and I think calling them the hapless is an acknowledgement of the curse, right? Um, you know, it's not the stone of like, um, the stone of the people who make who make really dubious choices, right? Even though dubious choices, in fact, are made right um, by all of them. But um, uh, but that's not how they're remembered. That's not what the stone is called, right? The the hapless, the unlucky. These were two really unlucky people, right? They, I mean, they're amazed. They're amazed at it. That that even that they should meet and fall in love after her amnesia, right? I mean, like, of all people, right? Of all, it's just like, yeah, yeah. Um, very hapless. Um, notice what happens, though, here. Um It is said that after that day, fear left that place, though sorrow remained. It was a place of fear and sorrow, and it's not a place of fear anymore. It was like, right? It was like the paths. It was it was on the, on the way to like paths of the dead status, right? Um, it was a place of dread, a place of fear. Now it's not a place of fear. The fear is cleansed. Remember, Hurin throws out at Manthor. Would you let her lie there till her bones are white? Will that cleanse your land? Their land does need cleansing. He's not wrong about that. And it is cleansed. The burial of Morwen, the, the Ruth that they show. You know what Ruth means? Ruth just means pity. It's a synonym. It's the Middle English word for, for, for pity. Um, it's the... It's the it's, it's, Old English word, Middle English word. Um, it's the Germanic word. It's the, you know, um, pity is a Latin word. Um, uh, pity is the Latin word. Um, but uh, Ruth is the, is, is the English word. Um, we still have the word ruthless, which means without pity. Um, uh, we don't use the word Ruth on its own anymore. Though Tolkien did, right? Um, but... Uh, yeah, so, um, yeah, uh, okay, how is it cleansed? The Ruth cleanses it, cleanses it, I think. 
Manthor is still trying to do all the right things, despite the fact that Hurin has brought the shadow to Brethil and already broken very many things. Right, the final blow has not yet fallen, but it's pretty close. But this moment, the burial, when Manthor turns, rallies the people, men and women, to go and to dare to approach the stone of the hapless, which they avoided in fear. And think about that. Why? Why are they afraid of the stone of the hapless? And I think it's pretty obvious why they're afraid. They don't want to stir. Something was going on there, right? Like they were so unlucky that it is not a coincidence. The ill fortune that was following those two people defies explanation by chance, right? Um, there was something else going on there, and people are trying to disassociate themselves from that. We don't, I, we don't want any of whatever they had to wear off on us, right? In other words, it's the curse of Morgoth. It's the shadow that was following Turin and Neonor as well. That's what they're afraid of. That's what is blighting this place with fear, with dread. But when they turn in pity, in Ruth, um, and they um, uh, they bury Morwen, they break it. And they, people come there now without worrying that they're going to bring the curse of Morgoth upon themselves. This is the one place in the entire story where we get things going in the other direction. This is the one place where we explicitly see something like the curse of Morgoth broken, where we do see the land not brought under shadow, but being cleansed. Um, yeah, Feanara says maybe also because Morwen herself was not conquered. Possibly. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I hear you, Alyssa. Alyssa says, this is where I come down slightly more on the on choice rather than fate. Hardon gave into, into fear of the curse and made the situation worse by saying nobody should go there. Yeah, this contrast shows that pity can make a difference. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, no, it does. Um, and it suggests to me that the only weapon against Morgoth, the only weapon against the curse of Morgoth, what can drive it away, it's certainly not fear. If you so, it does have to do with choice, Alyssa. I, I absolutely agree with that. The choice that they make, that Manthor makes, that the people make, the choice that the women make year in and year out, coming back to this place, right? Um, that choice, the choice motivated by pity, makes a difference, right? Does drive away, not just drive away the their own fear, but the, I. It seems to be that there seems to be something efficacious in that. Um, does that mean that Turin or Hurin could drive away the curse of Morgoth through pity? If pity were to guide their choices? Um, yeah. Um, right. Alyssa, so was Hardang wrong when he was dying that wisdom and pity would have made a difference after all? I think he might have been wrong about that. Um, 
there is it's hard to resist the Hardung's final words there, right? But now I do not think any wisdom or mercy would have saved me from you, for you have none, right? But I think, Alyssa, also part of the thing is here, Hurin is not making good choices. Hurin is not choosing pity. Um, it is from Hurin that no wisdom or mercy would have saved Hardang because he has no mercy or presumably wisdom as well, right? So again, would Hurin's, would Hurin making choices that were based on pity instead of making the choices that he's been making, um, would that have made the difference? Uh, I'm not sure if Hardang is wrong. Maybe he is. I think it's quite possible that he's wrong. We'll never know, of course, what would have happened had he used wisdom and mercy instead of um, what he did use when Hurin came. But again, uh, I think probably he wouldn't be wrong. But the situation would certainly have been different had Hurin used more wisdom and mercy. And again, I, this is not to say that I think the whole problem is that Hurin chucked a stool at his head. Right. And that if he hadn't chucked the stool, everything would have been fine. I don't think that's true either. But, okay, one more. Um, Thou hast a hard eye, Hurin, to pierce all hearts but thine own, said Manthor. Um, that is, uh, Hurin has just suggested that Manthor has kind of profited from this whole situation as he's certainly going to be chieftain now. Right. Thou hast a hard eye, Hurin, to pierce all hearts but thine own, said Manthor. Yea, thy darkness touched me also. Now, alas, the Haladin are ended, for this wound is to the death. This, of course, Manthor after he's been shot. Was not this your true errand, man of the north, to bring ruin upon us, to weigh against thine own? The house of Hador has conquered us, and four now have fallen under its shadow. Brandir, and Hunthor, and Hardang, and Manthor. Is that not enough? Wilt thou not go and leave this land ere it dies? I will, said Hurin. But if the well of my tears were not utterly dried up, I would weep for thee, Manthor, for thou hast saved me from dishonor, and thou hadst love for my son. Then, Lord, use in peace the little more life that I have won for thee, said Manthor. Do not bring your shadow upon others. Why must I not still walk in the world, said Hurin? I will go on till the shadow overtakes me. Farewell. Um, Manthor here admits when he talks about thy darkness touched me also. He's saying, you know, as I'm lying here bleeding to death, uh, in retrospect, I think that I was partially motivated. I was doing the right thing by helping you, Hurin, but I have to admit that in retrospect and with the objectivity of death, I have to look back and say that my motives were tainted by the fact, by political ambition, right? Um, I was taking advantage of your situation to make a play on Hardang and get him kicked out because, frankly, I never liked the guy and thought I would do a better job, right? And so in that way, your darkness touched me also and my own choices were tainted um, by proximity to you. So thanks for that, Hurin. Um, and then he gets even harsher um, and says that his true errand, Hurin was talking about his errand, Right, that his errand was to come to bring his accusation about Morwen. Um, and Manthor's like, no, your true errand 
was to bring ruin upon us. That was your true errand. Notice what he calls him, man of the north. How far north? He is a man of Dorloman, to the north of them. But I think his implication is clear. You are a man of Angband. That's where you came from. And that's the work that you're doing. You're doing the work of Morgoth. You're doing the work of Angband. Even if you're not... Um, even if you're not trying to, even if that's not your plan, right? It's what you're doing. The House of Hador, you and your son, between the two of them, have in fact destroyed the entire House of Haleth. It's gone. It's gone. Between you and Turin, it's gone. That is the result of your coming. Um, please leave before the entire land is dead. Um, don't bring your shadow upon others, he says. Um, and Hurin, Manthor was correct, that Hurin's eyes can pierce all hearts but thine own. And therein, I think, is part of the effect of the shadow. Um, think about the eyes, the piercing eyes of Hurin. Hurin was watching from a distance through the will and magic of Morgoth, right? Was watching, was able to see Turin and Neonor and Morwin and everybody else, right? And all the horrible things that happened to them. Um, he does have piercing eyes. And yes, he is seeing through many things. Except himself just as he did not see how his own information was tainted at its source, about Turin and Neonor, I mean, because it came from Morgoth, right? You don't see the harm that you're doing. So Tomas, he does imply that Hurin has a choice. Make a good choice with the life that is left to you, and don't just bring your shadow upon others. Hurin is not going to follow that advice. Um, this is uh, from one of his sets of uh, Tolkien sets of notes. A few men, fearing the end of Brethil and desiring to flee further from Morgoth, having no homes or lands of their own, are willing to go with Hurin. They depart and fall in, seek. Um, that is, I think it's pretty clear from the other passage that said they fall in with. Um, What's his face? Uh, what's his face? Uh, Asgorn. Um, but the rest. So, Hurin goes to Dorloman, and some of the folks from Dorloman follow him. And now, some more people are following him. And I have Brethel and joining with. They're following in with the folks from Dorloman. Um, okay. Um, they depart and fall in, but now Hurin seems to pick up strength in youth. Vengeance seems to have heartened him, and he. something. and walks now strongly. They pass into the woods and gather the last fugitives of the woodmen, the kin of the folk of Brethil. Asgorn they choose for captain, but he treats Hurin as lord and does as he wills. Whither shall we go? They must know a place of refuge. They go towards Nargothrond. Okay, so 
Hurin, after this, is going to become the leader of a, an increasing following of people, right? He takes his refugees from Dorloman. He adds some refugees from Brethel, who wouldn't need to be refugees if he hadn't pretty much wrecked the whole political structure of Brethel. And then he also gathers the woodmen, who already had no political structure. Um, and now he has that whole throng with them, and he himself is rejuvenated. Vengeance seemed to have heartened him. If you can't see it, I'm pretty sure that's a big old red flag, right? Um, vengeance seems to have heartened him. That's not good. Um, uh, yes, I think that's um, I think that's a pretty bad sign. Um, and they're headed down to Nargothrond to live, I guess. Because they need a place of refuge, like let's let's find a new place to hang out. We now have all these people, and now Hurin is a lord of an increasing people. So we're gonna we're gonna go down and we're gonna live in Nargothrond. That's what's gonna happen next. So they're gonna get to Nargothrond. We know where they're gonna end up, right? They're gonna end up in Doriath. As I I I didn't quote it because it was just that one phrase that I wanted to that I wanted to talk about. But when Tolkien is like, and the next thing that, uh, that Hurin is going to accomplish is the downfall of Doriath, right? So he's, he's got a to-do list, right? Destroy Brethel, destroy Doriath. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yes, Tomas, again, I agree. Um, the parallelism between Hurin, the parallelisms, the parallels, let me just say that. The parallels between Hurin and Turin are pretty striking. The, um, ruling bands of outlaws, the chucking things at people's faces. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, there are a number of uh, parallels. And that, too, is not a good look. Right? So we know Hurin and his following are going to go to Nargothrond. We know they're going to end up with the Nauglamir. We know they're going to end up in Doriath. Right? Um, how that happens, how Meme is involved, what's going to end up happening to all of these people... You know, the, the, the last remnants of hope from these other realms. Um, what horrible thing is going to come of all of them? I really don't know. Exactly, Fanaro. After I destroy Doriath, I'll, I'll, we'll, we'll give Gondolin another try. All right, exactly. Then I'll, maybe I'll go back and try to find Gondolin. I'll, I'll, I'll give that a, a second effort. Um, horrible. Horrible. Um, here's Tolkien's comment on Manthor. He's going to go back and revise this. Why? Well, because Tolkien thought, on balance, he's like, wait, this story is not quite depressing enough, right? I think there's still... Manthor is like an island of uh, encouragement and goodwill. Uh, there's one guy in this story who is consistently making good choices um, and who doesn't make you feel horrible about life. So I'm going to... I think I need to rethink that. Tolkien says, I think it would be good to make Manthor a less merely good character, for so his extremely zealous and cunning espousal of Hurin's cause would be better would better be explained. Certainly he has a great natural concern for courtesy, uh, see, see the civilized behavior and mercy, and he would have been angry at the treatment of Hurin, whoever he was. But A, he was proud of his kinship with the House of Hador, and B, he had desired the wardenship and had many and many had wanted to elect him. He was of the senior line, but by a daughter, Hiril. 
But though so far descent had been by eldest son, it had been laid down by Haleth and Haldar her brother that descendants and their descendants were to be eligible for election. The descendants of Hundad, of Hundar, Hundad Harathor, had not been men of mark or gallantry. These are, of course, Hardang's uh, ancestors. So plainly, Manthor was also using the coming of Hurin to further his ambition. Or rather, the shadow of Hurin fell on him and awoke the ambition, dormant. Note, Manthor never raises the matter of Hurin's errand, or, as was fairly plain, that Hurin came with ill will, especially towards the rulers of Brethil and the anti-Turin party. Okay, so there's that touch of that, this all of this stuff, there's that touch of all this stuff at the very end, right? And um, where Manthor says, you see with keen eyes everything but yourself. Um, and um, he... So, but Tolkien's like, no, 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 we need to lean into that, right? Let's make Manthor more flawed. Let us lean into his own ambition and his pride. Um, but again, notice he is not saying this in order to say, let's de-emphasize that whole shadow of Hurin thing. That's a little creepy and depressive. No, 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 no. No, he's, he's, he's leaning into that, right? Um, he wants to make it even clearer that the shadow of Hurin has fallen upon Manthor. Um, he's proud of his kinship and he had desired the wardenship. Those are, those are fine. Those are not bad traits. He's not making Manthor a horrible character. But instead, he is going to taint his actions with, um, you know, with, with like wrong desires, wrong choices, um, and make it more explicit that the shadow of Hurin has fallen upon him. Right? Um... Yeah, no good. So, here's a remarkable paragraph by Christopher. My father never returned to follow the further wanderings of Hurin. We come here to the furthest point in the narrative of the Elder Days that he reached in his work on the Silmarillion in the widest sense, after the Second War and the completion of the Lord of the Rings. That is World War II he's talking about. There are bits of information about the succeeding parts, not much, but no further new or revised narrative, and the promise held out in his words linked to the necklace of the dwarves, Sigul Elunaith, necklace of the woe of Thingol, was never fulfilled. It is as if we come to the brink of a great cliff and look down from highlands raised in some later age onto an ancient plain far below. For the story of the Nauglamir and the destruction of Doriath, the fall of Gondolin, the attack on the Havens, we must return through more than a quarter of a century to the Quentin Olderinwa or beyond. The huge abruptness of the divide is still more emphasized by the nature of this last story of the Elder Days, the shadow that fell upon Brethil. In its portrayal of the life of Brethel, into which Hurin came for its ruin, the intricacies of law and lineage, the history of ambition and conflicting sentiment within the ruling clan, it stands apart. In the published Silmarillion, I excluded it, apart from using Hurin's vain attempt to reach Gondolin and his finding Morwen dying by the, by the, beside the standing stone. Morwen's grave is made by Hurin alone, and having made it, he passed southwards down the ancient road that led to Nargothrond. So at the end here, this is Christopher explaining what bits of this he included in the Silmarillion, which we've already observed, and how he changed it. Notice, by the way, we can add this to our list of passages in the published Silmarillion that Christopher definitely wrote himself and Tolkien did not write. 
the sentence that describes Hurin burying, like making Morwin's grave by himself. Tolkien didn't write that. Christopher did. Because he needed to fill that in. He wanted the grave of Morwin, but he couldn't tell the whole story. So we didn't, we, we can't have Manthor and all the, you know, men and women of Brethil coming to bury, even though that's an awesome paragraph, right? We can't have it because we'd need the whole story in order for it to make sense. And he cuts it, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry, and I missed that. Alyssa, you're right. The key phrase in that previous paragraph was awoke the ambition dormant. The darkness inside might never come out unless provoked. Yeah, exactly. That's where I think, although he wants to make things for Manthor, you know, make Manthor's choices worse, right? Um, he's still, he's not leaning away from the curse. He's leaning into the curse, I think, there. Anyway, um, so this is it. This is the end. This is all the further Tolkien got in revising the Silmarillion material. And Christopher gives us a glimpse of the situation that he was in. Uh, what does he do? What does he do? How does he proceed? Um, to have included it, as it seemed to me, would have entailed a huge reduction, indeed an entire retelling of a kind that I did not wish to undertake. And since the story is intricate... I was afraid that this would produce a dense tangle of narrative statement with all the subtlety gone, and above all, that it would diminish the fearful figure of the old man, the great hero, Thalion the Steadfast, furthering still the purposes of Morgoth as he was doomed to do. But it seems to me now, many years later, to have been an excessive tampering with my father's actual thought and intention, thus raising the question whether the attempt to make a unified Silmarillion should have been embarked on. Ooh, big question from Christopher there at the end. Christopher comes to the chronological end of Tolkien's development of the Silmarillion story and says, I'm not sure editing the Silmarillion was a good idea. At least not in the form that he chose to do it. He set out to give us a unified Silmarillion story. And he says now years later, that uh, he's not sure he should have done it. He's not sure it was the right call. Notice the premise on which he's questioning whether it's the right call. Why didn't he include the wanderings of Hurin? Why did we not get this story in the Silmarillion? He could have included it. It's there. He could have included it. Why didn't he include it? He didn't include it because it's so different. Um, when he's talking about the nature of this last story, in its portrayal of the life of Brethel, into which Hurin came for its ruin, the intricacies of law and lineage, the history of ambition and conflicting sentiment within the ruling clan, it stands apart. And he's right. We don't get any stories like this in the published Silmarillion. Tolkien is, in fact, writing narrative on a different level. Remember, we've seen Christopher kind of talking about this, right? And I've been saying, since we began discussing the War of the Jewels here, that I believe that we can see, and I believe that we were seeing in the nature of Middle-earth, um, the extent to which Tolkien in his later days, in his post-Lord of the Rings days, is really wanting to write the Silmarillion in the same kind of narrative register that he wrote the Lord of the Rings. And that's what we're getting here. That's what we're getting in The Wanderings of Hurin. We're getting a different kind of story. It is not operating like, it is not on the same level, on the same narrative level as the... Um, 
um, as the rest of the Silmarillion, right? And so, yeah, it would have felt different. It would have felt different. Um, so Christopher's like, so yeah, I wanted, Christopher wanted the Quenta. He wanted a complete Quenta. And he tried to shoehorn this stuff into the Quenta. And there were some things that would just would obviously not fit in the Quenta. Stylistically wouldn't fit in the Quenta. Right? So he cuts the wanderings of Hurin. And only just keeps a few bits to keep the continuity of the story going. And again, I would say even the point that he makes here when he says um, he didn't want to... If he had just written a summary of all this, right? He could have done it. He could have... He, w- he could have written his own summary of the wanderings of Hurin at the register of the Quenta, right? To try to make it fit. But that would have been writing it all himself. That would have been him undertaking to write a bit of Quenta that Tolkien never wrote. And he says it would have... Um, it would have you would have lost, it would have diminished the fearful figure of the old man, the great hero, Thalion the Steadfast, furthering still the purposes of Morgoth as he was doomed to do. And that is a horrible figure. Horrible figure. The figure of Hurin in the wanderings of Hurin is horrible. Horrible. Um, it is not only a terrifying... And and I mean the word horrible in its classic sense. It is full of horror. It conveys horror. It inspires horror. Um, And Christopher's like, I don't think I could have conveyed that. Even if he had been willing to write a new version of the thing. Um, And he wasn't. And he tried not to to write as little as he could. And here we see him saying, maybe it wasn't the right call. But do you see what he's suggesting? What what would the alternative have been? I don't think he's suggesting, I should have just backed off and let it alone. I don't think it's what he's saying. I think that what he's saying is, the choice that he made to present, as he does, he presented in the published Silmarillion, we get a thing called the Quintus Silmarillion, Right? which is complete and unified. And it brings us from the beginning of the story, right? Uh, All the way up through the end of the first age, right? Um, And it's presented to us as if we get, we're getting a unified Quintus Silmarillion. And that I think is the thing that he's saying, I'm not sure I should have tried to do that. What's the alternative? Right? The alternative um, uh, the alternative is that would have been to give us something but not unified. In fact, the alternative would have been to do something more like Christopher then went on to do after he wrote this paragraph. Right? That is, to give us the children of Hurin to give us Baron and Luthien, to give us the fall of Gondolin, right? Um, that would have been an alternative to the published Silmarillion, to present the different works, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, 
Sobering thoughts from Christopher at the end of a very sobering story from Tolkien. But you know what's not sobering? We did it! I finished The Wanderings of Hurin. I actually achieved a goal. That's fun. Um, so here's what we're going to do. For next time, read the next two sections. Uh, the Wanderings of Hurin was like chapter one of this section of the book. So we're going to do Alfwina and Dirhaval, which is quite short. So we'll do that. And then we'll do the Maiglin as well. So um, we will go up through the Maiglin chapter. Um, and we will stop before we get to the Ants and the Eagles. Okay? So that's what we'll do next time. Um, these next two chapters. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. We're a little bit late, but not too bad. Finished the whole thing. Pretty excited. Um, thanks, everybody. And I will... I Yeah, I'll see you guys next week. Next week is not in question. The week after that, I'll be uh, on the way to Mythmoot. Anyway, thanks, everybody. And I will see you guys next week. Bye now.